In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We gather here this evening to remember, celebrate, and give thanks for the life of St. Luke. Not an apostle, but an evangelist, in the gospel sense of the word. As people of God who highly value sacred scripture, as people of God who, as we heard this past Sunday, Paul says that scripture is theopanoustos, scripture is the breath of God, it's, it's breathed out by God. It's people who hear that and believe that that means something significant, that this book is intended to um, reveal to us the Son of God, to reveal Jesus Christ to us and to direct our lives. We should be particularly thankful for St. Luke. If we're thinking about the New Testament, um, certainly Paul has written more books of the New Testament, but Luke has written more words. Um, In fact, he is the most prolific author in the New Testament. It is through St. Luke that God breathed the majority of the New Testament or, or more than any other speaker of the New Testament. He's also, quite interestingly, the only... Gentile author in the New Testament. Um, he is a, a sort of permanent symbol to us that what God did through Jesus Christ, through the people of Israel, through Israel's Messiah, he did not just for them, but for the whole world. Just the numbers, because I, I added it up. Paul has three thousand. I'm sorry, thirty-two thousand four hundred and eight words. Uh, Luke beats him out just barely by by about five thousand. He has thirty-seven thousand nine hundred and thirty-two words. We should also be thankful for Saint Luke um, as Anglicans. Um, our our daily life of prayer, whether we do this or not, should revolve around the offices of morning prayer, evening prayer. And Compline. And a central sort of climactic feature of these sort of mini prayer services are three songs, three gospel songs. The Benedictus during morning prayer, Magnificat during evening prayer, and the Nunc Dimittis during Compline. These three songs, again, recorded by St. Luke only. They're preserved by St. Luke only. If it weren't for St. Luke, we wouldn't have these songs. Um, they speak of God fulfilling his promises. They speak of God turning the world upside down, lifting up the lowly, tearing down the mighty from their thrones. They speak of God being faithful to his promises to Israel and being a light of revelation to the Gentiles. What, what Luke records makes its way into Anglican tradition and thought and sort of is intended to be ingrained in our our brains daily through this perpetual cycle of morning prayer, evening prayer, Compline, Benedictus, Magnificat, Nunc Dimittis. While Luke was a Gentile, as I mentioned, um, we there's a little pamphlet in the back there that's intended to be taken home and it talks about how to sort of celebrate this day with your kids or speak to your kids about this. And it, it refers to Luke as a second-generation Christian because Luke was not an apostle. Luke did not um, meet the risen Lord. 
He did not walk with Jesus during his ministry. He heard about Jesus from other people. It is um, intriguing, or, or at least interesting to me, that while, in, in fact, it is certainly true that Luke is a second-generation disciple of Jesus, in some ways that, that thought goes against Luke's own theology. Uh, Luke pens what is one of my sort of favorite kind of cryptic sentences. This is what I, I love about studying the New Testament. There's all these sentences that are, are sort of, they're easily skipped over and you can just move past them. But if you pause for about two seconds, you realize he just said something that can change the whole world. When he begins the book of Acts, he says, I, I wrote to you previously, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus not did and taught, but all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's, it's cryptic. It's a small hint about what Paul actually believes is happening in the book of Acts. But when the Holy Spirit descends upon the church in Pentecost, the church becomes the living, breathing manifestation of Jesus Christ to this world. What the church does through the Spirit of God, they do as Jesus Christ. What they say, they say as Jesus Christ. And, and this leads me to our, our gospel reading this evening. Um, one of the things you can do, one of the things you can do with the gospels, um, because so many of the stories are similar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, if not nearly identical, is you can compare certain stories in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and you can do what's called redaction criticism, which is you can kind of ask, what is Matthew's particular flavor on this story? What is Mark's particular flavor on this story? What is Luke's particular flavor on this story? And once you've done enough of them, you can start to see patterns and start to see um, bigger content. You can start to say, well, this seems like, um, this seems like a big deal for Luke. This seems like something Luke is trying to emphasize more than perhaps Matthew and Mark are trying to emphasize. One of those things about that Luke emphasizes perhaps more than the other synoptic evangelists is the idea that the, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, comes to us as a confrontation and requires a decision. And we hear that in this reading. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as proclaimed by St. Luke, is a gospel that makes a declaration to the world. This is what, in, at least in the, the tradition in which I was brought up, we, we missed um, greatly. The, the gospel was kind of um, good news. I remember, I remember so many times sort of this language of, have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? The gospel of St. Luke, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, is not a question of, 
Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? The gospel of St. Luke, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the declaration to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. What are you going to do about it? In this passage, the gospel comes as an announcement of peace. And I think that is important for us to remember. The gospel comes to us not as a declaration of judgment, but as a declaration of peace. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ intends to bring peace to this earth. Jesus Christ intends to bring peace to our lives, peace to our bodies, peace to our humanity. What do we do when that announcement comes? Do we reject peace? Do we embrace it? This is how we are to come to people as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is continuing to do and teach through his church. Not by... Not by people standing around um, writing books about theology. But by people being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is what strikes me so much about this passage, is, is the climactic sentence. When you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, yes, heal the sick in, in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. I mean, when I hear that sentence, I think this is it. This is the entire mission of the church. This isn't, this isn't go out into the world and, and argue people into believing in Jesus. This isn't go out into the world and have really good apologetics um, or really good arguments for why Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead when some people say he didn't or why the New Testament should be believed when some people say it shouldn't be. Go and heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. This is, um, there's something struck me recently when, when we, not here, but I celebrated the Feast of the Transfiguration, and Peter wants to stay on the mountain. And in every, every version of the story, this, this climactic scene where, where the heavens open, Jesus sort of reveals himself, Moses and Elijah are there, everything is glorious and beautiful. But down at the foot of the mountain, when Jesus goes down the mountain, there is a boy suffering and a demon raging against him. That's why Peter can't stay on the mountain. That's why that's a bad idea. Because the church isn't called to dwell on those mountaintop experiences. The church is called to go down to where the sick are, where the poor are, where the hungry are. To go to them as Jesus Christ. To do and teach, filled with the spirit of the living God. To heal, feed, clothe. And say to the people, the kingdom of God 
has come near you. Right now, in this moment, Jesus is standing before you, trying to make you whole. Jesus is standing before you, offering you peace. If it weren't for that offer of peace, we would have no reason, no reason to gather, no reason to pray. That, that offer of, priest, of peace, which we reenact in the liturgy, right? The peace of the Lord be always with you. That's, that's what we're doing. Is our, our life. The peace of Jesus Christ meets us and asks us, Will you be sons of peace, sons and daughters of peace with me? Will you do what I did? Will you say what I said? Will you go to the people to whom I went? Every, every day, particularly when we gather together in a place like this to celebrate communion, the kingdom of God comes near, comes near us. It challenges us, it confronts us, and it makes demands on us. Will we be children of peace as St. Luke wants? Or will we not? Will his peace leave us? Because we refuse to do what he did. We refuse to say what he said. We refuse to go to whom he went. Go to the town, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. This is what it means to be the church. Amen.